Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of podcasts about Scotland's history, obviously. Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am the host. I am a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh, although I did get some questions last week about my accent. Uh, it's safe to say it's not an Edinburgh accent. Well, it's probably a bit, uh, a, bit uh, a mix now, actually. Uh, I am originally from a place called Dingwall, which is in the Highlands of Scotland. It's about 15 miles north of Inverness. Um, if you're, you know, if you've never been to Scotland, you're thinking I'd love to go see the beautiful, wild, rugged terrain of the Highlands. Then you know, I'm prob- Dingle's probably not the place for you. To be honest with you, it's uh, in all honesty, it's less stag and whiskey Highlands and more methadone Highlands. You know what I mean? Like they have a simple saying for men from Dingwall. It goes along the lines of you can take the man out of Dingwall, but you probably shouldn't. You probably definitely shouldn't. Um, but I, you know, I had completed the comedy scene in Dingle. It was time for me to move on, and I live in Edinburgh. I've been, and like I say, I have been here. Well, I can't, I've been here probably ten years in Edinburgh. I've I've been here long enough that I probably don't have the right to take the piss out of Dingle anymore. To be honest with you, um, so I do apologise for that. Um, anyway, so yeah, like I said, um, a little more about me. Uh, I actually. In the before times, before the old uh, the C word came along, I ran a, a tour here in Edinburgh called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, which was basically a, a kind of comedy walking tour of the city. It was combining essentially what is now a dead art form crossed with an industry that doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, I'm kicking in the dick these days, really am, folks. But anyway, this podcast is me attempting to kind of replicate what I would do in my tours, tell you some stories, tell you about our history, and hopefully make you laugh a wee bit as well. It's not topical in any way, uh, unless, of course, you're from one of Scotland's island communities and you're just finding out about stuff that happened hundreds of years ago now. Um, Yeah, sorry, Orkney, Elvis is dead. Gutter, yeah, gutter. Uh, But anyway, what, what I mean by that is you don't need to, like, listen to the the podcast, you know, week by week. You can go back to the first episode and listen to the first one and then kind of follow it through because I'm, I'm, the the idea is to go in a, in a chronological order. So this, uh, this week's episode is called The First King of Scotland. Uh, it's basically about how uh, the Kingdom of Scotland uh, came to be. So the kind of disparate tribes, how they came together to form something close to what we would recognise as Scotland today. I do hope you enjoy it, folks, and I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy. Have fun. On the 24th of June, 1314, Robert the Bruce, the most famous king in Scottish history, he defeats the English forces of Edward II at the Battle of Bannockburn. It was against the odds. It was a victory that he, he wasn't necessarily expected to win, and it is by far and away our most impressive victory against the English. It's one of the most pivotal moments in in Scottish history, if Robert the Bruce had not defeated Edward's forces on that day, then it is very, very likely that Scotland as a country wouldn't even exist. We were fighting for our very existence on that day. But there was a battle 600 years previous to the Battle of Bannockburn that was equally as important, that was equally as decisive, that was equally as significant for the future of our country, and it's the Battle of Dunnachan. Now, if Stuart Armstrong, by the way, is listening to this podcast, I don't know, Stuart, if you listen to Scottish 
history podcasts or not, right? Stuart Armstrong is a professional football player from Scotland, currently plays for Southampton in the English Premier League. And Stuart Armstrong was on the pitch in 2017 when we were very, very close to an equally as memorable victory against the English, an equally as unlikely victory against the English, considering how shite our team was on that day. We were moments away from an incredible, incredible victory. We were 2-1 up. There was one minute left to play. Stuart Armstrong has the ball in the middle of the park and he gives it away. He plays it. If he plays the football anywhere else, right, then the English players don't get it. They don't whip a cross in for Harry Kane to equalise with literally the last kick of the ball, right? If Stuart Armstrong had just played that football anywhere else, if he had booted it out of the fucking stadium, then we would have a brand new, fresh, delicious, against the odds victory against England to enjoy. And we wouldn't have to cling on to these victories against England that existed 700 years ago, that existed 1300 years ago, or which existed in the 1970s, which, as far as I can tell, may as well be a time of make-believe. Because every time my parents describe the 70s to me, it sounds like bloody Narnia. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, yes, Daniel. I, when we, well, I'll tell you this. When we would walk to school, you had to we had to walk at the top of the fence post because the snow was so deep man Jesus boy let me tell you and there was only listen there was only two channels on the television Daniel and on one of the channels you'd inevitably find Scotland beating England at something so uh, it became boring after a while you know we'd turn over to the other channel to watch the Bay City Rollers for a bit you know I don't know what the I my suggestion to the producers of Outlander would be to to next series just travel back in time to the nineteen seventies because it seems as fantastical and as removed from our current day experience as the blinking eighteenth century is. The Battle of Dunnekin, it was fought on the 20th of May, 685 AD. Uh, and Dunnekin is uh is near the town of Forfar, which is in Angus in Scotland. And it was fought between the Northumbrian Angles and the Picts. And so the Northumbrian Angles, they were under the command of their king, Edgefrith, who at that time was the most powerful man in northern Britain. And the, the Northumbrian kingdom extended as far north as the fourth, so basically to Fife. And he was looking to extend that kingdom into northern Scotland. And they were stopped by the Picts. Now, the Picts, they were incredible warriors. They had a, uh, they had a real connection and relationship with their animals as people in that part of Scotland continue to have to this day um, that's a joke about bestiality by the way which uh, is just a fancy word for sheep shagging if anyone's wondering um, and so they had these like uh, they had these these wee ponies right? I know it's hard to call, describe someone as an incredible warrior and then say they're riding a wee pony at the same time but basically they had kind of smaller more nimble horses than the angles had and the, the picts they would use their like knees and their their ankles to steer the horses, which meant that they had two hands to to use and manipulate their weapons, whereas the Angles always had to have one hand on the reins. Basically, it's like that, you know that, that guy, that character in Lord of the Rings, Legolas? Yeah. Like that, he, he is what like a Pictish warrior would have been like. Although, obviously, like the Picts were still from Scotland. So just imagine that guy, but much... Much, much uglier, you know, like uh, if Legolas had, you know, was like fifth generation of couples that were shagging their own cousin. That, you know, that's basically what we're looking at here. And it was a very, very significant victory. Um, the, the Pictish king, 
and I <laughs> this is amazing. The Pictish king who defeated uh, Edgerith at the Battle of Dunnekin in 685 AD, his name was Bridey McBilly, which is one hell of a name that, isn't it? Bridey McBilly. We now got Bridey McBilly fighting against Jundy McGinty at the Battle of Bothinechy here. Um, like, I love that. I think it's, it's a. Oh, yeah. So, Forfer is famous for brideys, right? So a bridey is a, it's like a pastry. It's like a, the, the neatest thing that you would probably know it to would be like a, a pasty, right? Delicious kind of like pastry with meat in it. Um, and the actual football club in Forther, right? Forther Athletic, their club mascot is a bridey, right? So every other weekend, some, some person is dressing up as a bridey to entertain the wee ones at, at the Forfer games, which, I mean, you haven't lived until you've been to a football match in which the, the club mascot is a pastry, right? But anyway, I'm sensing a connection here, and I've, I've looked online, I couldn't find anything, but here's this incredibly important, significant battle in Scottish history, won by a Pictish king, Bridie McBilly, very close to the town that is mostly famous for Bridie's, I can't find anything online about it, but if anyone from Forfer would like to get in touch with me and tell me that there is a connection between Bridie McBilly and actual Bridie's, that would, like, properly make my day. That would cheer me up in these corona times. Now, why is it such a significant port, uh, significant win for the Picts? Well, it's safe to say that if the Picts had not have won, if they had not defeated the Angles at the Battle of Dunnachan then there is a very, very good chance that Edgefrith, he would have pushed on, he would have conquered most, if not all, of Pictland, he would have then set on the rest of Scotland, and the entire British Isles would have been Anglified. So just think about that for a second, folks. The entire British Isles would have been Anglified. That means that we would be... There, there, Scotland wouldn't exist. There would be no such thing as square sausage. There would be no such thing as iron brew. We would have Chaz and Dave... And no proclaimers. We would have leaks instead of locks. We'd have Morris dancing instead of Kayleigh dancing. We'd have Pims, fucking Pims, instead of whiskey. We'd have Little Britain instead of Still Game. The Angles would probably have even have managed to find a way to bollocks up our tap water to make it as bad as theirs. So Bridie McBilly is a Scottish hero who should go down. He should be right up there with the William Wallaces and the Robert the Bruces of this world. And Scotland's flag, eh, the saltire of the Cross of St Andrew, that can actually, or its origins can be traced back to another battle between the, the Picts and the Northumbrian Angles. Somewhere around 750 AD, there was a Pictish king by the name of Unist, and he was fighting the Northumbrian Angles in Athelstanford, which is in East Lothian, not that far from Edinburgh. And um, the night before the battle, St Andrew came to King Unist in a dream and assured them of victory against the Angles the following morning. And lo and behold, when King Unist awoke in that morning, the sky had formed into the perfect cross of St. Andrew. So the Scottish flag, the blue represents the blue skies in that morning and the white represents the cloud formation. Scotland's flag is based on blue skies. Are you kidding me? 
You've got more chance of seeing Susan Boyle riding a, uni- riding a unicorn than you do a bloody blue sky in this country. Which, incidentally, by the way, if we do get independence here in Scotland, that is what we will adopt as our new flag. It'll be, it'll just be Subo riding a unicorn. In fact, I think we should just make her queen. Fuck it, just go the whole full hog. Now, St Andrew, he's the patron saint of Scotland, despite the fact that he's not actually Scottish. And uh, he didn't even set foot in Scotland. He's kind of like Rod Stewart in that respect. You know, he's kind of kiddie on Scottish. But the whole the whole cult of St. Andrew is that um, his, his relics were taken here. Now, when you say relics, by the way, relics are just like the body parts of old religious people. It's why Glasgow's got loads of them, you know, relics left, right and centre there. Um, but basically, the, the the relics of Saint Andrew they ended up in Fife. Uh, it was a Saint, Ru- or the, the the story goes that Saint Rule took the re- the relics here, um, or I should say specifically, an angel told him to take the relics to the end of the earth. Um, so he took him to Fife because he was thinking, well, what's the most kind of like apocalyptic place I can think of. And so his relics, they were housed in uh, St. Andrew's Cathedral and people would pilgrimage to St. Andrew's to to visit the the relics and that is where St. Andrew's gets its name from. Now, after Dunnekin, the Picts had solidified their position as the most prominent and powerful ethnic group in Scotland. But within generations, the Picts would be all but erased from Scottish history. And it's one of Scottish history's great mysteries, um, is what actually happened to the Picts. At some point, there was a belief that there was uh, an ethnic cleansing, some sort of genocide of the Picts. But that's that's not thought to be the case anymore. It's basically, it's more likely the case was that the differences between the, 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 the Irish, Gaelic, Scots... And the native Pictish people of Scotland, they began to break down. They were both, at the end of the day, Celtic tribes. But since their conversion to Christianity, they both looked to the Celtic church of Iona, which was in the the kingdom of Dalriada, the Scots kingdom of Dalriada. And so it was natural that the differences between the two would begin to break down. But the real monumental shift between the Picts and the Scots occurred in the 9th century, when invasions began from Scandinavia. That's right, those pesky Scandinavians, they ruined everything. They came over here with their high standards of living, their low-income disparity, their excellent public services, their high-quality crime fiction, and their nine-pound bloody pints to evil bastards. Now, the Viking reads, um, the... They particularly were vulnerable to the the Scots because the kingdom of Dalriada was in modern-day Argyll and the Hebrides. And so these coastal regions saw the Scots begin to move inland into the Pictish lands. And the Scots and the Picts, they had to come together to restrict the Vikings to the coastal regions of Scotland. So places such as Orkney, Sutherland, the Hebrides, Shetland, of course. These are the parts of modern-day Scotland that retain the greatest Viking influence. And by that, I mean they're the parts of Scotland where you're most likely to get sexually assaulted. Now, the unification of the Scots and the Picts... uh, it came circa around, somewhere around 840 AD. Now, war had ravaged both the Scots and the Pictish royal families. And when a guy called Kenneth MacAlpin, 
uh, becomes King of the Scots around 840 AD. Kenneth McAlpin, he was of mixed heritage. His father was a Scot and his mother was a Pict. And he inherits the throne of Pictland just a few years after he becomes King of the Scots. So for the very first time, we've got someone who's both King of the Scots and King of the Picts. And Kenneth McAlpin, he creates a new kingdom, a kingdom of Alba, which contains both Picts and Scots, a united kingdom of Alba. It's the old Gallic word for Britain. And Kenneth McAlpin, he moves the power base of the Scots from Iona, which is under attack by the Vikings, and he moves it to a new royal seat of Schoon. It's just north of Perth. It's right in the heart of modern-day Scotland, and at that time, it was right in the heart of Pictland. And so, Schoon would be the, the spot at which all future kings of Scotland would be crowned. Uh, it's also pretty royal heavy in modern day Scotland, to be fair. You know, a lot of Tories live there, let's just put it that way. And so, Scotland's royal families, Kenneth McAlpin is considered the first king of Scotland because he is the, the first one to unite the Picts and the Scots and he is the first one to to form a kind of recognisable Scottish dynasty. And so the Kingdom of Alba is is the beginnings of Scotland, is the, is the coming together of the Irish Scots and the native Scottish Picts. Basically, what happened was Ireland and Scotland got together and they had a lovely, lovely little baby that became Scotland, a, a kingdom of, of super gingers, if you will. Um, unfortunately... Uh, the next kid that Scotland and Ireland would have together would be Northern Ireland, um, which, you know, is the kid that they probably maybe should have considered, you know, having aborted. Now, another important king of Alba who plays a part in the Scottish origin story is that of Constantine II. Now, the old origin story of the Scots is that we are descended from ancient Egypt, you know, because nothing says Egyptian quite like pasty, white, aggressive ginger people. Now, the only problem I have with the suggestion that Scottish people are descended from ancient Egypt is that Scottish people were just not hairy enough to be Egyptian. Well, maybe the exception is Susan Boyle. Obviously, it goes without saying. But the story goes that there was an Egyptian princess by the name of Scotia, right? She left Egypt and she travelled through Gibraltar, Spain... Ireland, this is obviously before we left the EU, and when she crossed the east coast of Ireland, she clapped eyes on her very own promised land, um, which makes me think that she must have flown Ryanair because uh, only Ryanair would get you that far away from where they promised, you know what I mean? Like, it would take you to Scotland, but you're actually in Ireland. Um, I don't know what she was promised, by the way. Do you know what I mean? Rain, midges, and miserable people, presumably, but anyway... Now, on this journey, Scotia, she took with her a 152-kilogram lump of sandstone. As you do, right? This is this is back in the days before you were restricted to 22 kilograms of luggage. You could take as much as you wanted back then, right? And this great big lump of sandstone, this is Scotland's most important, most precious national artefact. It's said to be the stone upon which Jacob dreamed of Jacob's ladder. He used it as a pillow. 
which admittedly is sounding more like Ryanair. Um, and Jacob's Ladder is like a stairway to heaven, like the Bible version, not the Led Zeppelin version. It's called the Stone of Destiny or the Stone of Scoon. And this is the stone upon which all of Scotland's kings and queens would be crowned upon at the royal seat at Scoon that Kenneth, Mac- Kenneth McAlpin had instilled. Um, and or at least it is the spot where all of Scotland's kings and queens were anointed upon until the end of the 13th century, when an English king by the name of Edward I invaded Scotland, stole the Stone of Destiny, took it down to Westminster in London, and then all of the English monarchs, and thereafter the British monarchs as well, were anointed upon the Scottish Stone of Destiny. And incidentally, that's the way the situation remains. So when the Queen dies, I mean, if the Queen can actually die. Do you know what I mean? I'm starting to think it's either a hologram or she's immortal. Do you know what I mean, right? But if the Queen dies, it's a pretty big if, admittedly. What they'll do is they'll take the Stone of Destiny out of Edinburgh Castle. They'll go down to Westminster in London and go underneath the coronation chair and the new King will be anointed upon it. Now, when this stone was stolen from Scotland at the end of the 13th century, it was only returned to Scotland in 1996, 700 years after it was stolen. So, you know, Greece, you've only got, what, another 500 years to wait until they give you the Elgin marbles back? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it's said that wherever the stone lays, the Scots will rule. Um, and it's currently in Edinburgh Castle, which has a Union flag flying over it, but nonetheless. And it became a, a real source of kind of Scottish nationalism and, and, and Scottish kind of pride. And there's an amazing story in 1950 of a group of five Scottish students who broke into Westminster Abbey and stole the Stone of Destiny, or they liberated it, we should say, and took it back to Scotland. Um, and four months later, it ended up in, in front of the altar at uh, Arbroath Abbey, which is where the, the Declaration of Arbroath was signed, wrapped in a psalter. It's a really, really interesting and great story, which uh, I'm not going to tell you the now because I'm going to do a podcast on it later down the line. Now, where does Constantine come in? Well, Constantine II, he, very importantly, in this origin story, he added a husband for Scotia, Gathelos, who's a prince of Cynthia. And importantly, he was an ancestor of the Picts. So this is a, a deliberate attempt by Constantine at, at nation building. What he was doing was, right, instead of you've got this, this Egyptian princess, Scotia, he, he gave her a Pictish or a, a husband that the Picts can then claim ancestry to and it helped to bring together the kind of myth of Scotland. Now, one of the final pieces of the, the Scottish unification puzzle, it came in 1018, the Battle of Carnham, which was a battle between the, the Northumbrian Angles, the Anglo-Saxons, and uh, the kingdoms of Alba and Strathclyde. Now, the English... They had, uh, they had been hit quite heavily by the Vikings. The Vikings had won huge swathes of land in the north and the east. It would lead, unfortunately, a thousand years later to a, a god-awful tourist attraction in York called Jorvik, which is it's kind of like a weird Madame Tussauds for Vikings. It's simply horrendous. But anyway, the... the 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 old English king, the king of Wessex, Alfred, he has to he has to give the Vikings huge swathes of land known as the Dane Law, and uh, his sons Edward and then Athelstan they they win back these huge swathes of land and become incredibly powerful, and they look north to the kingdom of Alba and they've got their eyes set on that, and so there's a a huge battle 
between the two in Humberside in 937 AD when Athelstan defeats Constantine II. And then in 1018 comes the decisive showdown at the Battle of Carnham. Carnham's just on the border between Scotland and England. And it's essentially a battle for the Lothians, for Edinburgh. Edinburgh had been in the Northumbrian kingdom. It had been under the control of the Angles since 638 AD. And in 1018, the Scots king Malcolm II, he defeated the Northumbrian Angles and the Lothians in Edinburgh came under Celtic control for the first time in over 400 years. Now they would keep a hold of private schools, cricket and Murrayfield as an old to the, you know, their Angle overlords of the past. Now, the kingdom of Strathclyde, um, that had already been annexed by Malcolm. Their king, Owen, he was a vassal king of Malcolm. He died in the fight in the Battle of Carnham. So it meant that not only was the Lothians incorporated into the kingdom of Alba, but so was Strathclyde as well. And we finally, for the first time, have this new kingdom of Scotland. It's said that on hearing of the defeat of the Angles at the Battle of Carnham, the Bishop of Durham died of a broken heart. Um, which is probably fair enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I got my arse kicked off a guy called Malcolm, I would probably be pretty upset about it as well. That's like getting your arse kicked off of the IT guy at your work, you know? Now, in the after the battle, the border between the two kingdoms was established at the River Tweed. And although that border would be, you know, disputed over the next couple of hundred years, it essentially is the 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 spot at which the modern border between Scotland and England exists to this day. And so 1018, after the Battle of Carnham, that is when the kind of recognisable, as we know it today, Kingdom of Scotland falls into place. So that's us, folks. That's, uh, that's come to the end of this episode of the uh, Monobank History of Scotland. Thank you so much for listening if you've made it this far. Um, you can support this podcast by going and becoming a, a, a Patreon uh, or a patron of it, I should say, on my Patreon page. Uh, it's just at Montebank Tours. Also, you can go to buy me a coffee if you'd like to contribute to it. Um, on both those pages, you'll see I've got like a YouTube channel, I'll do bits of stand-up, storytelling, all that kind of stuff, um, which I'll be doing on the podcast as well over the next few weeks, hopefully. Um, each week on the podcast, what I try to do is I try to raise enough money through the kind of Patreon, through the Buy Me A Coffee accounts to send someone who deserves it a bottle of whiskey. Um, so it's a horrendous time right now and just a wee bit of recognition. Um, if I can basically buy someone a dram, then I want to do that. It could be a key worker, NHS staff. It could just be a thoroughly sound pay, uh, person. doesn't matter. Just comment uh, who you would like the bottle of whiskey to go to, either on my Patreon, my Buy Me A Coffee, on any of my social media, at Montebank Tours, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, or you can drop me an email, a wee message, and I will pick one at random. What I try to do each week is choose a whiskey that is in some way connected to what we were talking about on the podcast. Um, so I'm going to go for the Aberfeldy today, which is a kind of lower Highland uh, region whiskey. The reason I'm going for that is because it's the distillery that's closest to um, the Royal Seat of Schoon, which is, as we've learned in the podcast, an incredibly part, important part of Scotland in particular, history, the coming together of the Picts and the Scots. And also because there's not that many uh, distilleries in Angus, um, it's probably a distillery that's geographically pretty close to Dunnekin, which is where the Battle of Dunnekin occurred. It's a fantastic dram. It's got a bit of history in it because it's the only distillery that was built by the, the very famous Dewar brothers, who are the behind the, the, the famous Dewar brand of blended malts. And um, or blended whiskey, I should say, and so 
It's a really, really smooth, delicious, easy drinking type of dram. Um, if you would like to nominate someone to to receive a bottle, go on, leave me a couple of quid so I can buy the bottle and leave a comment with their name. Thanks so, so much for listening. Uh, I hope to see you next week. My name's been Daniel. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>